0: Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith. Broadcasting from the aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. And we're back. Glad to be here. Hope everybody had a great week. I'm uh, slightly anxious because I start my next semester on Monday as of recording this. Very interesting. If you are new to the Subtle Cane podcast, thank you for gracing us with your virtual presence. If you're a returning listener, thank you for your continued support. It is much appreciated. This is episode Fifteen of the Subtle Cane podcast, Uncomfortably Numb. Today we're going to talk about meaning again, but we're also going to talk about information. And I'm going to try and weave together how these two things might be, well, I would propose are connected in a very meaningful way. In Plato's rhetorical dialogue, Phaedrus... There's a story about a great king of Upper Egypt named Themus. In this story, Themus has an interaction with the god Thuth, inventor of numbers, calculation, geometry, astronomy, and writing. Thuth presents Themus with inventions of his, and a rhetorical dialogue is held. And for those of you who hear the word rhetorical and kind of immediately have a negative response, that, that's understandable, because like so many of the words in our lexicon, it's kind of been usurped by the political class, and it's been I'm given somewhat of a pejorative connotation. But rhetoric is just the art of persuasion. And as we discussed in episode six, come on, baby, light my torch, persuasion can be honest or dishonest. It's unlike propaganda, because propaganda tries to manipulate by subconscious means. Persuasion is the art of convincing someone of something you propose an actual argument and either you convince them or you don't but it isn't this subversive technique that propaganda is and so persuasion is not good or bad and rhetoric is not good or bad it's a tool you know i can i can build a house or crack a skull with a hammer and the hammer can neither take credit for the house nor the homicide We will get more familiar with rhetoric in the future. We will. Because I do plan on doing... I do plan on discussing the seven liberal arts in the future. I think you'll find that interesting. But that should suffice for now. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion. So back to Thamus and Thuth. Why, Aaron? Why? Why are we talking about Plato's dusty old writings again? Well in keeping with last week's theme of meaning and previous discussion of scientism, I thought it would be constructive to kind of tie some things together, as I said, if only loosely, for the sake of consideration. In Phaedrus, there are some stories, and one of the stories is this Thamus and Thuth. And in this story, Thuth presents his invention of writing in this way. Quote, This invention, O king, said Thuth, will make the Egyptians wiser, and will improve their memories, for it is an elixir of memory and wisdom that I have discovered, End quote. And King Thamos is unimpressed with this. He's, un- he's unimpressed, and he responds as such, quote, This invention will produce forgetfulness in the minds of those who learn to use it, because they will not practice their memory. Their trust in writing produced by external characters, which are no part of themselves, will discourage the use of their own memory within them. You have invented an elixir not of memory, but of reminding, and you offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom, for they will read many things without instruction, and will, therefore, seem to know many things, when they are for the most part ignorant and hard to get along with, since they are not wise, but only appear wise. End quote. So let's kind of break this down. Thuth makes the claim that his invention, writing, will improve memory and wisdom. Themus argues that it will do the opposite. Easy access to retrievable information will not improve memory. It will only allow for recognition. Now, when I first encountered this dialogue, I was struck by the simple coherence of it. And this will ring more true for older listeners. But remember before cell phones? I mean, I can still tell you the phone numbers for childhood friends and family members. I can, still to this day. But honestly, I can't tell you more than a couple of the numbers I call most frequently now. I go to my contacts in my phone, press my finger to the name I want, and it never even occurs to me to remember the number because I don't need to. Now, that maybe is is. I don't I don't need to know the phone numbers most of the time, but I'd surely be up a crick if I did need to remember one. And this is only a very small example of the point. It's a small example of the point famous is making. Think of how many times you have to look something up. Think about it. We can barely trust ourselves to remember some of the most basic things. People will just stop. I had this happen last night. People will just stop mid-conversation to Google something. It, it happens so frequently that it doesn't even come across as socially awkward. I mean, when you stop and think about that, ugh, it's not a good look. Just one generation ago, prior to the internet, one would feel quite foolish having to stop a conversation and look something up. I'm not immune. I'm not immune. And it, it kind of it's a little shameful to think about how many things I have to look up that I should already know. Um, even just preparing for an episode. So what? Why does it matter? Why does it matter, Aaron, you say? We have technology to verify information, and so there should be no harm in utilizing it, surely. I mean it's a good thing to have So much knowledge at our fingertips, isn't it? But of course, of course, that implies that the information you receive from your search is credible. And we place an awful lot of faith in our search engines, don't we? We accept a version of reality that is presented to us quite uncritically in most cases. What an astounding amount of faith in the algorithms of big tech. Big tech. The dirty car salesman of information. And no offense meant to any uh, honest car salesman. We barely think about the fact that search engines accept money for preferential treatment from governments, corporations, and organizations of many variations. How easily we are persuaded to accept an answer that was bought and paid for. Of course, not all answers are bought and paid for, but there is no valid verification of truth in all the others. I mean, the answers are generally an accumulation of data that's been processed by unthinking, uncritical, and inhuman calculations. There's no real wisdom allotted for. Algorithms are incapable of wisdom, which is the proper application of knowledge. And that's the point that Thamos makes next. We can't verify much of the information that we receive, and if we're honest, if we're honest, we will admit that we don't really try to. I mean, I spend a lot of time doing research, and I try to be careful with my sources and find corroborating sources of information that I bring to you here, but that doesn't mean that I won't get anything wrong. It means that I'm slightly less likely to. But I don't do that in my everyday life when I just look things up out of boredom or uninvested curiosity. I mean, how many times do we Google something and then just click on the top few answers? It's really kind of terrifying when you think about it. There's a Latin phrase that I always liked. I actually have a t-shirt uh, that has it printed on the front. I'm wearing it now. The phrase is "quis Custodiat Ipsos custodes. It means who will watch the watchers or Who will guard the guards? And this is generally used in reference to police powers or military powers. But I suggest we apply it here to information. Who will fact check the fact checkers? Who will keep Google, the government, corporations, and activists accountable for their information? As I stated before, this is a big problem. Because there will always be schemers. Who will want to manipulate information to serve their purpose. And the internet is Pandora's box. It is now open. And so who will watch the watchers? I don't know about you, but I don't trust people enough to delegate that position. Not with the most important information. It's not a question that I have an answer to either. This quis custodiet ipsos custodes. Who will watch the watchers? I don't have an I don't have the answer to that. I think about it. I am thinking about it. But it's an important question nonetheless. Back to Thamos and Thuth. Thamus tells Thuth of writing, quote, You offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom, for they will read many things without instruction and will therefore seem to know many things when they are for the most part ignorant And hard to get along with, since they are not wise, but only appear wise. And it's a harsh statement, yes, but does that not ring true? I mean, how many times have we found ourselves feeling quite haughty about our opinions when they're based on what we've been told to believe, the information we've been fed? How much quiet contemplation is happening in the conversations you see on social media? The rapid fire back and forth of people replying to each other either out of emotion or maybe they quick look something up that confirms their biases and proudly send a link to someone else's thoughts. Think about it. Remember our discussion about the difference between education and indoctrination. This is truly evident in this point. Remember, education is teaching someone how to think, indoctrination is teaching someone. What to think. I'm going to give an example from my quote-unquote education. I'll be graduating with my bachelor's degree in the science of nursing in a few short months. Fingers crossed. But that will not make me a nurse. I will have to pass the NCLEX, a standardized test to assess my knowledge, not my wisdom. It's a multiple choice style test and kind of the bane of my existence in this format. This means I'll be presented with static, situational questions that have little to no real-life application. I'll be given multiple answers that someone has deemed to be right or wrong, and if I do not read the question and interpret it the way the writer intended and perceive the situation differently, I can easily choose a wrong answer. This really bears no actual relationship with reality. It tests only my ability to regurgitate a low-context, technical understanding of a prescribed thought process. It's not assessing my ability to effectively and competently apply the knowledge that I have gained. Though it's sold that way, it, it does not do that because of the low context of the questions. It's not going to prove that I can manage the interpersonal skills necessary to serve my patients. It's not going to offer any resolution to the question of whether or not I understand the dynamic environment that is nursing. Yet, it's a non-negotiable. No NCLEX, no license. But how much will the regurgitation of information help me to treat my patients? Now, of course, we want a system that evaluates competency, In our, I just argue that this test does not and cannot. Thankfully, thankfully, as a part of my education, we have clinical training to complete. And that does allow for a kind of assessment that can provide necessary training and proper application of knowledge in a real world environment. That is a a critical component of nursing school. I argue that we have not gained a technology that improves memory and wisdom, but in fact, diminishes our ability to remember, and sets us up for a susceptibility to deceit and ignorance. Again, he's custodiat ipsos custodes. It's a two-edged sword, because we're so quick to accept the benefits of technology while ignoring the costs. And you say, what does this have to do with meaning, Aaron? Come on. I was introduced to this material by Neil Postman in his book Technopoly. I've mentioned it before, and I've quoted. I've also quoted from it before. I do so now. Quote, when the supply of information is no longer controllable, a general breakdown in psychic tranquility and social purpose occurs. Without defenses, people have no way of finding meaning in their experiences, lose their capacity to remember and have difficulty imagining reasonable futures. End quote. Well, I think we can agree that there is no longer control over the supply of information. That is dangerous, but not in the way our lovely fact-checkers and censors imply. No, because we can't delegate truth to a group of people who have all the same failings as us. As I said, it's a Pandora's box. The information's out there. We, we can't delegate our trust. There's no way to ensure that they'll not be tempted by money and power to betray our trust. I mean, if the last two years has taught us anything at all, it should be that those capable of manipulating a narrative for their own benefit will do so. It doesn't matter what issue you're talking about either, or what position you take. There's people from all different sides of various arguments that have an invested interest in manipulating you. There's enough people out there without integrity that capitalize on our ignorance. They're out there. It's the bread and butter of technocracy and scientism, as I've said before. The old trust the experts line. And it's also the reason why you don't hear ads on the podcast. And I know, here he goes with the value for value pitch. But yes, yes, and this is why. This is why I don't accept money from corporations for ads, and I don't allow anyone to advertise because I don't want potential manipulation. So if you find value in what I am doing, you can provide value back with your time, talent, or treasure. And there are links in the show notes about how to do that. You can email me at subtlecane at protonmail.com. That's subtlecane at protonmail.com. But back to this idea about the breakdown of psychic tranquility and social purpose. Prior to Google and other search engines, prior to the fire hoses of information that we carry in our pockets, we had to look things up in a book or remember them. Prior to navigation apps, we had to remember how to get places. We'd look at a map and then plot a course. These might seem like skills that are dispensable. And why care? Okay, We have the technology, right? I mentioned the navigation app specifically kind of as an analogy for our social purpose. The direction of our thoughts reflects the input we receive. It's much more consequential than might one might initially believe. I mean, how influenced are we by the constant streams of information that we're fed? The answer is very. We are very influenced by it. Imagine, if you will. Imagine, if you will, a time when The only news you would receive would be the daily newspaper. It would be a local paper concerned mainly with local issues, maybe a smattering of major stories on the national level, or maybe rarely something global. What would your day look like? Just close your eyes, unless you're driving. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. Close your eyes and just think about not having any Google, no 24 hour news cycle, no, nothing feeding you information. The only access you had to the outside world, outside of your community, was just a local paper. What would your day look like? No news of the many things going wrong in the world. Well, for one thing, for one thing, you'd be focused on the world right in front of you, the world you actually have agency in. We tell ourselves, we tell ourselves that we need to stay informed so we. Watch the news or scroll through news feeds and social media, but what does that information do for us? You know, I'm not saying we should stick our head in the sand like an ostrich, but I, I I think we should look at the flip side of the coin here too, and we need to ask ourselves this question: What does that information do for us? What application does it serve in our lives? Recently, a volcano went off in Tonga or a bomb explodes in Iraq or a child is murdered in another state or another country or a political party accuses their opponents of some nonsense or another. I'm not saying that the tragedies that we learn about aren't tragic. I'm not saying that they're not tragic. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about what happens to people that live far away. What I'm saying is that we have no power to control most of the situations we read or hear about. So I'm asking, genuinely asking, what is the benefit of knowing? What is the utility of knowing? Apart from the issue of whether or not we're even receiving accurate information, let's just set that aside for now. Let's, let's pretend we're in a world where nobody's lying to us. And in this fantasy, the information we receive is always valid and true without an agenda. Even in that case, in this pretend world, what good, what utility does the information provide that is outside of our agency? The supply of information has increased exponentially, but our agency in the world has not. There's, a, there's an imbalance of the information that's coming in and what we're able to actually address in our lives. And the product of that is frustration, despair generally a loss of hope. Let's be honest. It's not usually good news we're receiving. It is also much easier to feel like you're a caring person when you follow these stories and empathize with the subjects. You feel good about yourself when you see something happening far away and you think, oh, those poor people. And I'm not even proposing that it's not genuine concern or empathy. What I'm proposing is that, If we're so engrossed in the affairs of the world which we have no agency over, well, how much of us is left to address the world we do have agency in? How many people bemoan the injustice of the world from behind a screen, while the suffering in their own neighborhoods and communities goes unaddressed by them? Fair question. Give an honest accounting, please. I'm doing this myself. Give an honest accounting of your daily life and calculate the ratio of time you spend worrying about things outside of your control. That ratio between that and the time you spend acting on the things which are in your control. I mean, consider how much good, how much good could we do if we spent less time concerned about the things we can't affect and more time involved in the actions we can take to improve the lives around us. I mean, we're walking around in this state of discomfort brought about by our inability to resolve the many things we're exposed to that we have no agency over. And this makes us numb to the immediate world to some extent, I argue. I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue my challenge from last week's episode with this caveat. If you catch yourself being drawn into an issue that you have no agency over, and it's causing you frustration, really assess yourself too. Don't blow it off. If you're drawn into an issue that you have no agency over, just stop yourself and try and substitute the offending issue with one that you do have agency over. Replace your sense of powerlessness with one of empowerment. Maybe you can't change the outcome of a trial or offer aid to a victim of distant crimes. But you can share a kind word with someone or encourage them. That's the stuff that changes the world. That's that's where it's at. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's what will bring you a sense of peace that you're not going to find online. Bring it back. Bring it back to the world in front of you. People are starving for encouragement. They're starving for it. Just Just someone to come alongside them and see them. I mean, really see them. I mean, we're walking around so distracted by what is outside of our control that we miss so many opportunities that we do actually have to do good in the world. Now, I encourage you. You can do this. We can do this. And we will not regret it. We will not. I promise you. I leave you with this quote from Jordan Peterson The light that you discover in your life is proportionate to the amount of darkness you are willing to forthrightly confront. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and yes, you are worthy. God bless and good night.